0: Hello, this is Camille Broderick, the host of Camille's Demi-Hour, a 30-minute show dedicated to sharing an inside perspective of the Epicurean world here on Nantucket Island. Thank you for listening. This is Camille Broderick with Camille's Demi-Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR Station. And I do wanna start by first sharing that the show was created to give an inside perspective on the culinary and agricultural community here on Nantucket Island. I also wanted to create the show so we can give some background information about where the island was and where it is now with all these amazing things at our fingertips and I was fortunate enough to get a few contacts who mentioned these two guests that we have on the show today who definitely, I feel, have a direct impact on the evolution of the culinary world here and also have a perspective on the food scene nationally. So it is without further delay to introduce Russ and Marian Morash. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Very (laughs) nice to be here. Nice to be here. Well, it's lovely to have you here. Russ, I'll let you begin. With your relationship to Nantucket,
1: well, our journey to Nantucket began way back before in the, sometime, I think, in the 70s. And we were on Martha's Vineyard and decided to come over for the day to Nantucket. We, we brought our bicycles and um, our children, our children <laughs> and we spent um, most of the time worrying about whether we'd get back in time for the afternoon ferry. And we were uh, unaware that there were so many cobblestones for bicyclists to uh, navigate. But uh, we, we left that afternoon and hadn't, didn't return for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years.
2: Well, it was actually in the 60s, I think, that we came and uh, uh, said we would probably stay on the vineyard. We were not deeply in love with Nantucket. Okay. And then many years later, 1975... We arrived to open a restaurant in Nantucket and have never left since and wondered what we were thinking back in the 60s.
0: <laughs> and you're both originally from New England?
2: Yes. Yes.
0: And so, Russ, your experience, I guess we can start there. Your background, you have been called the person who found Julia Child, is that correct? I, I,
1: I would accept that. Um, I would accept that credit if uh, if it was given.
0: If I had an award, I yeah, would pass right, it off right, to right, you.
1: Right, right, right. <laughs> Well, I spent uh, more than 50 years in public television, most of it with WGBH. And uh, at one point they said, um, we have this uh, woman, this was in Cambridge, we have this Cantabrigian. she's tall and she's got an odd voice, but she's uh, written a book and we need to uh, see whether uh, she could uh, work on television as well as her book is working in the critical press of the time. So we uh, sat down and created what became The French Chef and went on for years and years and years producing those shows and other sequels right on up to the time that she uh, that she uh, left television.
0: What I found was interesting was that you met at college and you were in the fine arts theater departments, and that's how you met, and that's where I think it's interesting that you had that eye to see Julia as an interesting character, as someone that would appeal to... I think, a range of people. What made you realize that this this woman has a unique draw?
1: Well, some of this is probably revisionist, but I mean, as I look back on it, the things that would impress anybody, not just me, a mere stripling youth of the (laughs) mid-20s, confronting a um, a woman in her early 50s, I think, at the time, who'd been everywhere and had been Mm -hmm. a Smith graduate and uh, been the wife of a of a uh, not a diplomat CIA, or... but a diplomat, mm-hmm. and uh, had traveled the world and had learned cooking enough to produce this masterpiece of uh, mastering the art of French cooking. Mm-hmm. But um, I've never been bashful. And so she and I sat down and, uh, and we talked, and she's got she had humor, she had curiosity, she was curious about my job, and I was I was absolutely impressed with her. With her uh, attack on the subject, which she loved, mm-hmm. she loved, she loved cooking,
0: and you continued to produce other uh, shows that are mm-hmm. still in running uh, after decades. They
1: refused to die. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: Well, it's because there's some value there. So right. it was the Victory Garden, right? And um, then in
1: '78 we did uh, this old house, mm-hmm. and in fact we even brought that show to Nantucket at one point uh, a few years back. And uh, every time I go by the Milk Street House, as we used to call it. I think about the good times we had. Bruce Killen was the builder on that, and a dear departed friend. And uh, so our paths crossed not only from the from the gardening side, but also from uh, this old house. Mm-hmm. And then uh, ultimately uh, another show on furniture making called the New Yankee Workshop. And uh, what am I leaving out? The Victory Garden. Those are the three, yeah. uh, and Julia Child. Those right. Are the, maybe four, maybe six. I don't know.
0: And and Marion, you uh, helped out with both the French chef, and then took over as host at one point of the Victory Garden as well. Is that, that well? Right? I
2: was allowed to do a cooking segment on the <laughs> Victory Garden. Uh, having your husband be the director, you know, you have a little to say. But no, what 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 had happened was that we had uh, Russ had gotten a wonderful talent who really showed people what. Fresh vegetables were like and what happened was that lots of people wrote in and said oh my heavens I didn't know what a leek was mm-hmm. how do I cook it what can I do and so somebody probably Russ said why don't you write up a recipe and we'll put it on air and at first I just wrote them mm-hmm. and then I got I was allowed a little segment mm-hmm. on, the, on the show make two to three minutes to show how to do a, uh, a recipe of whatever particular vegetable they were highlighting on that show And that then turned into a book, and it went on from there. Yeah,
0: And there's been several other books as well, correct?
2: Uh, Well, we did a video uh, library, and then we did another book based on my experience at the Straight Wharf restaurant, which Mm -hmm. was a fish and vegetable cookbook.
0: So when did the culinary experience jump in for you more full-time at the Strait Wharf? When did you segue into saying, I'm yeah. going to open a restaurant?
2: Well, I didn't say it, actually. Um, what happened was, and again, it all goes back to Julia. We uh, we had friends in, in Boston area, and we loved to cook. We were cooking Julia's recipes. And a friend of ours, Jock Gifford, a longtime resident on this island, and his wife, Lane, decided they would like to open a restaurant. They were very friendly with Walter Beinecke and the building that they were interested in was a laundromat for the boats on the wharf and they talked or Jock talked Walter into letting him take a lease and turn it into a restaurant and Lane and Jock did not know anything about cooking, but they came to me and to my friend Susan, because we've been doing a lot of cooking together, and said, come open a restaurant with us. And we said, are you mad? What, what, what is the matter with you? We don't know anything about opening a restaurant. And they said, well, what we want is a restaurant that has food like you prepare at your parties and at home. We don't want a fancy schmancy restaurant. We want home cooking with fresh vegetables and fresh ingredients and Let's go for it. And of course, once you start thinking about it, you say, well, I think I could do that. Maybe I
0: could. So, at this time, when you were preparing food and starting the Victory Garden and the French chef had come out, was it a niche market that people were growing their own vegetables and cooking at home, doing things that are quick and easy? So, was this a kind of a, a cultural movement at this point? I think it was Not a beginning, like don't
2: you? I think mm-hmm. it was a very beginning.
1: Well, I would put it a little differently. When Julia broke on the surface, there were no leaks to be had. You could not buy a garlic press. Mm -hmm. The restaurants were all uh, very high classic French kind of stuff and very stuffy Mm -hmm. and very expensive. And not many people used restaurants. Now, cut ahead to the 70s. And the restaurants that were on Nantucket were traditional restaurants, but as Mariana said, there aren't, were no fish restaurants. Mm-hmm. Although we did have a few fish boats, and boy, do we miss those! Mm-hmm. And um, that is the, the that was one of the the major holes to be filled with the Straight Wharf restaurant, something that tasted good that was built on uh, seafood and. Fresh vegetables. Fresh vegetables. Well, so- There were
2: three farms on the island then, mm-hmm. so we got as much produce as we possibly could get. During the season. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, from and it was a seasonal restaurant. Mm-hmm. So um, we got them from the farms, and I remember that because of the sandy soil on this island, that we had to wash the lettuce about eight times just <laughs> to get it from being gritty, you know. But mm-hmm. it was very important to us. To use as much as we could from this island, including the fish. Walter Glidden was a great friend of ours, and he got fish in on boats coming directly to his, in those days, to his shop. Mm -hmm. And uh, he would bring over the fish for us, and we tried to do as much local as we could.
0: If you're just listening, this is Camille Broderick with Camille's Demi Hour, and in the show today we have Russ and Marianne Morash, some very important people on the island. Russ's background is with WGBH for several decades, and one of the finding producers of the show, The French Chef with Julia Child, The Yankee Workshop, and The Victory Garden. And then his lovely wife, Marianne, who has... Supported him in all those adventures and also with some other cookbooks and also she had her own restaurant here called The Straight Wharf for many people who probably know it. And if you would continue sharing that experience of what you learned when you never opened a restaurant, you (laughs) weren't a former trained chef and you got together with your friends and you... Created a fish yeah, restaurant. Yeah,
2: it could. It could be a book, actually. <laughs> <It was laughs> another one. About, another book about the uh, foibles of opening a restaurant. But uh, we were very fortunate. We had a very, very talented friend, Joe Hyde, uh, who was uh, a world-class chef, and uh, he came the first year and saw us trying to um, open the restaurant and cook. I remember when we came with all our cookbooks, and we were ready to start, and the the kitchen was a mess. They hadn't finished it. Nothing was hooked up, and we said, oh, dear, well, we'll have to postpone the opening, and Joe said, nonsense, and he went right down to Hardy's store, which is a hardware store here on the island, and he got a two-burner uh, electrical out, uh, hot, plate. hot plate, and he brought it over and put it in the middle of the kitchen. And there are carpenters all around. He said, "Start cooking," and we did. In other <laughs> words, his idea was that um, a good chef can cook anywhere. But Julia, speaking of that, Julia did come. She was very excited about the Straight Wharf, and she, we had invited her down as you know just to visit Nantucket. Mm-hmm. And I could not get her out of the kitchen. I mean, she she sent. Poor Russ. He spent the day with Paul. Paul was a great photographer. And so Russ was assigned to take Paul away for the day so Julia could spend the day in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And there's a lovely little story. She, uh, she we, we finally got her out for a couple of hours, but she wanted to come back and work on the line at night. And so we got her out for a couple of hours. And when I came back, the top of the hood, all along the edge of the hood uh, of the vent hood above the stove, was covered with towels, tape, big towels taped up to it. And I, my nephew, Jeffrey, who was opening clams at the time, was there. And I said, Jeffrey, what, what is this with the towels? And he said, oh, he said, I did that, Aunt Mary. And he said, because she's so tall. She kept and her I head. was afraid she would hit her head against the steel metal edge. <laughs> oh, goodness. Which was very sweet oh. of him. We did take the <laughs> towels down, and she was able to work the line without them. But. So was that?
0: do you think that was her first reel in the kitchen? It was.
2: And she... Loved it. I mean, she loved it. And word got out. We didn't say anything about Julia being there, but somehow word got out, and we'd get phone calls, you know. Oh, we want to make a reservation? We understand (laughs) Julia Child is cooking. (laughs) To
1: the folk myth that Gets out of the box, and yep. then of course it was Julia's kitchen, and then it was <laughs> Julia's <laughs> restaurant, and then Julia was there every night, every day,
2: yeah,
0: yeah. And you let that right out as she long did, as you She did. She
2: did it for three days. She, we really, we had trouble getting her out of the kitchen. We did do all the mise en place ahead of time, so she could just go in and do her her thing. Well, you were lucky it.
0: to to even taste her food in the beginning days. You were telling a story earlier about when you first met Julia. Yeah. You you were living outside of Boston in the Metro West area and young and starting your life out. And
2: yeah, uh, Russell was making $85 a week. Maybe I shouldn't tell that. <laughs> that a week. I'm not kidding you. And uh, so we were doing tuna fish casseroles. And but when he was doing Julia's shows, and she would send to me every Thursday after they Had done their live tape. Partially cooked. Partially cooked something. Versions
1: that could not be used. With
2: instructions.
1: In time on the show. So they were sent home with us.
2: And then the best one, I think, was when I called my friends and said, come for dinner tonight. We're having a whole roast goose stuffed with prunes stuffed with foie gras. (laughs) Yum. (laughs) (laughs) Which was not. The usual dinner at the Moor Ashes.
0: When you look back on all your experiences and see the evolution of what's happened on the Nantucket restaurant scene, where do you think you played a role in that? Some people say that it was a pivotal time to have fresh fish. You said you made sure every plate had vegetables on it. Yep. What's your perspective on that moment where it kind of went to a more fresh, maybe that California style cooking that was yeah. hitting the East Coast a little more? I
2: think our I think our whole philosophy was keep it simple. I remember there was a a man that came in the kitchen one day and he was selling flavors in a bottle so that you could pour them into your soup, smoke in a bottle, and we said no, this is a we call this an all fresh kitchen. Please leave. We didn't even have a freezer. We just, well, we did finally get a freezer for ice cream. But we oh, just wow. felt everything just was everything. fresh. And um, that was our motto. Simple, mm-hmm. uh, native if possible. Not everything could be. And again, it was fish. It was a fish restaurant. Because it
0: seems we, as though that's what everyone's doing now. and that's yeah. what, But that was unheard of back then.
2: Yeah. It was a point off the curve. There was no question about it. Also, if I may interrupt uh, long enough to
1: say, many of the restaurants offered incredibly complex and
2: vast lists of things to eat, mm-hmm, didn't they?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you mentioned you had three items to start? Well, the first
2: year, because we didn't know what we were doing, <laughs> uh, we had three. Uh, we we gradually made that uh, larger. And then uh, at one point, the bar became very popular. So after a few years, we started sending in a few things to the bar. I'd like to say that we, I think we initiated the world's first Bluefish pate. <laughs> well, it wasn't smoked. Oh. At first. Another award goes out to <laughs> you. <laughs> no, we uh, again, our friend Joe Hyde. I I thought it would be nice to give everybody a little something when they first came in. So we were making a, sm- a salmon bat- pate with poached salmon, and Joe said, "Wait a minute, that's way too expensive. What's what is local here? What can you buy oh. for nothing? Bluefish." So in those days, they weren't smoking bluefish. So mm-hmm. we took regular bluefish. Fresh bluefish, poached it, and made a pate out of it. Oh, wow. and, then, and that was a longer uh, process. So when smoked bluefish came mm-hmm. available, we switched over to that. But uh, he, was, he was the one that got us that. And when we first made the pate, the bluefish was gray. And then we had cream cheese. So it was kind of this putty-looking mess. And he said, oh, OK, we need color. So lots of chopped bread, onion and lots of green parsley yeah. and lemon juice and, you know, flakes of lemon. And so that That's made so it a little cool. mo- more colorful.
0: <laughs> so fast forward and now we're in present day. You're here year round. I imagine you have some time off and get to garden yourselves and enjoy the restaurants here and look at what's happened over time. Where do you think we're going on this island in the restaurant scene here?
1: To the poor house. <laughs> <laughs> We we cannot afford uh, many of the restaurants that are out there. It's mm-hmm. just too expensive. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think that's they're going to recognize that, or do you think they're going to ride this wave a, a bit longer with the tourism industry here? I'm sure with the tourism, and you know there is in in, in to say a little bit for the restaurateurs,
2: there there are, um, are extra costs of getting getting things here. There is no question about that. Right. Nevertheless, some of the prices are really over the top. I think, mm-hmm. and um, it's discouraging for young people who want to go out and or people that don't have you know a vast uh, expense uh, budget, uh, budget mm-hmm. for dining but I think that's a little bit too bad though I think that the choices have mm-hmm. certainly expanded since we were first here and but what the you-
1: partnership that Beinecke had with Jock Gifford allowed allowed a what was a laundromat to be turned into a restaurant and at a moderate price mm-hmm. so to some extent, You only have to look at what the rents are in Nantucket to see why the prices of the entrees Mm -hmm. are what they are to some extent.
0: There is an economic factor. Yeah. Um, Maybe we should
1: look at that a little more closely and mm -hmm. figure out what can we do to make it practical for young people starting out and wanting to do a restaurant.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: How how can we give them a venue without, without breaking the bank?
0: And with that being said, what do you think about the style of cooking today, both on Nantucket and nationally? Obviously, there's a big trend going to farm to table. And yes, again, which I think you have some direct relationship with because of your experience seeing the Victory Garden success, seeing people trying to return farm yourself, trying to have the herb garden in the back. It's both more healthy and economic. Do you think this trend is going to just continue. I,
2: I'm so impressed by what's going on in Nantucket as far as, for instance, the, young, the schools at the mm-hmm. Lighthouse School. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the other schools, but the, they have the children really working in the, in the garden. It's and part of the curriculum. It's a part of the curriculum, which mm-hmm. is very exciting, I think. And so many more young people uh, are going into the restaurant business and the farming business. Mm-hmm. And then the, the farms that they have out at Bartlett, what is that whole section called where the people go out and farm there? Um, I'm not the sure. The allotted land yeah the, that the oh, sustainable yeah, Nantucket's yeah, yeah, working with? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, so that, none of that was going on when mm-hmm. we were here, I mean, when we first started. So I really see a big change. And then, of course, in the chefs, I remember an article that we uh, had written about us about the all-woman chef uh, restaurant, all-women chefs in the kitchen, all-women working in the kitchen, and... That was very unusual back in 76. I mean, really, it was like a big article that Phyllis Hain did for the Christian Science Monitor, but look at how shocking this is. And now you have women... Yep. Chefs everywhere. Restaurant tours, pastry chefs, yeah, mariés, at, chefs. It's yes. amazing what's happened. It's mm-hmm. a real transformation, I think.
1: I think what, I, what I've seen at the edges of this, because it's not my main deal, but uh, what I see at the edges is it's the, the, the culinary fraternity seems to be far more professional, better trained, mm-hmm. better equipped, and with a much higher tolerance to experiment than uh, was true when— when we started to garden and cook back in the 60s, when when Julia was around. I mean, Julia was the pioneer she was, I think, in part, because she said, no, 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 you need the right knife, the right pan, you need Mm -hmm. the right ingredients. Mm -hmm. Although she was not uh, exposed to the kind of superior produce that is now available. Mm -hmm. And I would, let me just say, it's not just produce from the farms that have, the local farms, Ah, uh, but produce uh, in general mm-hmm. is now uh, widely available. You can get things that you couldn't get before mm-hmm. year round, mm-hmm. and um, so we're we're able to provide a pretty good product in terms of uh, what what the chef gets to gets to work with, and that's that's an advantage.
0: Yeah, that, I think Thomas Keller said some. They were asking him if it was all about local farm to table, which is a beautiful thing. You can really taste the ingredients in a way, just like when you taste wine and when you're in Italy or in France. But he says it's not just about local; it's about getting the best product possible. Absolutely, yeah, and that is true. I think for some chefs, I think they're really going that extra mile. But um, that takes time and research, and maybe that's part of the cost as well.
1: And part of the part of the dialogue has to be: they have to get the produce. The produce uh, marketers need to hear from the users that such and such a brand is not producing what it should, and Mm -hmm. could we try something
2: else? Uh, I remember Wilson Farm, which is we live near in Lexington, and Al Wilson, I went with him once because I was writing articles for uh, Boston University magazine, and um, I went with him to the farmer's market one morning at 2 a.m. he picked me up, and in we went. And obviously the Wilson Farm does not grow all its own things. They they buy from the produce um, hall. And he was nasty <laughs> I mean trying to get the, I mean there the were best the there. best product I mean there was broccoli and there was broccoli and there was broccoli mm-hmm. and they would almost have fist fights about I'm not taking that I want this mm-hmm. you know so uh, it, you do really depend on if, on your grocer if mm-hmm. you
1: don't like the grapes at the stop and shop it's your duty to tell the produce manager these are not up to standard mm-hmm. And they will respond. Right. But if no one says anything, mm-hmm. you're going to get the same squishy grapes with mm-hmm. seeds in them. and That go know. bad in two days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to speak up. Um,
0: well, uh, it's sadly wrapping up time. And I, I would love to invite you back and talk more maybe about gardening and um, have the opportunity to discuss more things about what you're doing. Is there anything that you can share of any projects that you're maybe working on at this time in your lives?
2: No, we're uh, we're basically on island for the summer, but uh, no, we're here and we're going to enjoy gardening and dining at some of the good restaurants. Mm-hmm. Yes. One of which, which we love is Languedoc Bistro because they're well, we're very consistent. Miss restaurant week, which is uh, yes, great. that's too I wish bad. I was restaurant year. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You see well, where I'm coming hopefully from. hopefully uh, if the entrepreneurs out there are listening, <laughs> they may respond. But thank you so much for being thank here you. today. It's a, It was a great honor. And I hope all of you out there enjoyed hearing these stories as much as I did. So thank you again. And if you want to say one goodbye to the audience. Happy eating is what I say. Well, Julie and would cooking.
1: say bon appétit.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I second that. Cheers. Oh, yeah. Thank you again for listening to Camille's Demi Hour. Tune in every weekend through Labor Day on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station, Saturday mornings at 10.30 and Sundays at 11.30. If you want to hear the full episode, you can find me on iTunes. Cheers.